Hey there, thanks for tuning in to the St. Oswald's Haberfield Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. Um, I want to tell you a bit about a friend of mine that I had in high school who was a real larrikin. He was fun and likeable and creative and clever and very humorous. Lots of people liked him. He was smart and responsible enough for the teachers to trust, um, but wild and adventurous enough that he got into the wildest scrapes of anyone in our year and definitely suffered by far the most broken bones and injuries from all the sporting accidents, jumping out of trees and other things he got into when he was on hikes and holidays. When we were in year 11, he quite suddenly encountered Jesus. He heard about Jesus. He comprehended how much of a difference Jesus makes in the world. He realized that Jesus is the Lord of everything, and so he decided to follow Jesus with everything he had. His whole life was suddenly all about Jesus. And maybe it might not surprise you to learn that he became even more of a larrikin after that happened. There were just even more shenanigans. There were more hair-bearing schemes as he came up with creative ways to share the good news of Jesus with everyone he met, and he wrestled with the highs and lows of following Jesus. It was just, he was a wild person. And at the end of school, on the back of his year 12 jersey, he had written, Leap of Faith, which everybody, the believers in our school and the secular kids alike, thought was the perfect summation of his years of schooling. So many years of both physical and metaphorical leaps of faith at school. My friend wore this phrase as a badge of honor. But as I was watching at the time, not everyone around us saw a leap of faith as a positive thing. There's this assumption that following Jesus, or being a Christian, or whatever it is you're going to call it, requires a leap of faith. And it's often spun as something negative, a blind leap of faith. This assumption is that taking a leap of faith requires turning off your critical thinking, turning off your brain, to make a crazy and questionable decision that goes against all rationality. And I watched all these assumptions play out in real time at school as the conversion of my clever, adventurous, well-respected friend to Christ was met with incredulity and then ridicule by our peers for the final two years of high school. How could a clever, critically thinking young man in a clever, critically thinking school like this one turn a blind eye to reason? How could someone like him decide to be spiritual, decide to have faith, decide to believe in God, or for crying out loud, to decide to believe in Jesus? I want to tell you about my friend as we continue our series this January looking more closely at the questions Jesus asks, because today we're considering this question from John chapter 9, do you believe? If you have your Bibles open, you'll see that it's the question that John asks at the end of the chapter on page 868 in verse 35. When we hear Jesus' question, do you believe? Today I want us to slow down I want to challenge us not to hear it the way that my peers heard it at school. I want you to challenge not to hear, do you believe, as, 
Do you want to turn off your brain and blindly follow? Or do you want to take a blind leap of faith into something completely unknown? Because our passage today teaches us that belief in Jesus is the opposite of these things. It's the opposite of turning, on your bra- turning off your brain. So today, as we ask this question, do you believe, we need to hear it in the context that Jesus actually asked the question, in the context of this profound healing story from John chapter 9. John 9 shows us that belief in Jesus is the opposite of a blind leap of faith. Belief in Jesus is not about blind faith, it's about sound judgment. Belief in Jesus is not about blind faith, it's about sound judgment. So we're going to jump into our story now. We're going to look at the questions, actually not that Jesus asked, but the questions that everybody else other than Jesus asks to think about this question. How is belief not about blind faith, but sound judgment? So it would be helpful to have your Bibles open. We're going to take a bit of a survey now of all the questions that get asked in this chapter. Did you register that there were a lot of them? A lot of questions in this chapter. So we know verse 35, Jesus asks our headline question, do you believe? But there were lots and lots of other questions going through, at least 15, that other people ask in this episode, depending on whether or not we count the implied questions. Everyone is asking them. Jesus' disciples ask questions. The man who was healed asked questions. The neighbours who had seen him begging asked questions. The Pharisees that the neighbours bring the man to, they ask him questions too. They're all asking questions because there's this mystery to be solved. Something strange has happened and they don't really know what to do about it. But notice that all of these different people are actually asking different kinds of questions because they have different hang-ups, different baggage. There are different mysteries that they're trying to piece together. The very first question comes from the disciples. They start with a question even before the healing happens. Can you see it in verse 2? It's actually on the previous page. They have a theological question to solve. What sin, whose sin, has caused this congenital blindness, Jesus? Jesus' disciples, like many, 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 many people in many generations before them and many generations after them, have a serious question about this situation. What causes innocent suffering? Why is this happening? This is a very worthwhile mystery to ask Jesus about. It's a worthy and important question to ask. And in fact, last year, our church spent nearly two months wrestling with this exact question. But it's not the question that Jesus wants his disciples to get bogged down in today. He answers them, yeah, that's a good question to ask, but God is actually about to do an amazing work, and that's why we're looking at this man today. That's the disciples' question. We also have questions from the man who was healed. And the most interesting one he asks is at the very end of the chapter, in verse 36. The man wants to know who, not why he was suffering, but who, who has healed him? Who exactly is the individual that has healed him? Who is the son of man? Who is the person that God has sent to heal and save? Who precisely is the person that he should be believing in? There's a why question, there's a who question, and then there's a whole bunch of what questions that are being asked by the man's neighbours. After his eyes are healed, they just start pumping him with questions to work out what's happened, what's happened, is it really you? How did this happen? Where is your healer? They just want to piece all of it together. And then after they've pumped him, I mean, it's really hard to put a positive spin on this decision because it goes so badly for the man and his family. But then the neighbours decide to take him to the Pharisees, the leaders, 
of the, of, of the Jewish people to get their hot take on the situation. So when the Pharisees come on the scene, they ask a bunch of questions too. And again, they're not why questions. They're not who questions. They are what questions. And so much more aggressive than the neighbors. They also pump the man. They pump his parents too. And in the cross-examination of the parents, we see exactly what's at stake now that the Pharisees have turned up. In verse 22, we learn, if the Pharisees hear that anyone gives Jesus their allegiance as the Messiah, as God's chosen king, then they will be ostracized and excommunicated from the rest of the Jewish people. The stakes are really high in these questions. And the way that these questions get answered will have drastic implications for the man who is healed and for his family and probably for Jesus himself. The Pharisees are asking these questions not to find out why something has happened or who's behind it. They're asking to find out how can we incriminate Jesus. The ways the characters in this episode ask questions reflect something important about how everyone asks questions in the world today. Anyone asking questions reveals something about what they're thinking and feeling. And we can see something about the motivations behind these characters from the questions that they're asking. The ways anyone asks a question can reveal a lot about our approach to gathering information, understanding what's going on, and what we're choosing to believe. Sometimes, people can be rigid about what they believe. If we're like this, we only end up asking the kinds of questions that will validate or confirm what we already think. We see the Pharisees doing that in how they talk to the man and his family. But there are other times when we're prepared to critically consider what we already think and what we believe. Maybe because we've encountered some new information, a new experience, some new evidence. And so when we come to those moments, we ask questions that might help us properly understand these new things and work out what's going on. This is the dynamic at play in John 9 today. With the exception of the disciples who already know Jesus and follow him, there is one person in this episode who walks away from the scene deciding to believe in Jesus. And he is the one who asks careful questions and weighs up the evidence of what, of what has happened to actually try to understand who Jesus is and what he is doing. When the neighbors ask questions, they're just trying to fuel gossip and drama. The parents are just trying to stay out of trouble. And the Pharisees we've seen have just asked questions to validate their prejudices and their preformed opinions to try and incriminate Jesus. You can see how they ignore and contradict the answers that they hear, anything that might force them to change what they already think. But the man who is blind is different. Watch how his understanding about who Jesus is shifts and changes as the story unfolds. Every time he repeats his testimony, every time he gets asked a question about what he has experienced. At the beginning, he doesn't even know what Jesus looks like. But by verse 17, he is confident to call Jesus a prophet. And then as the story unfolds, he gets even more bold. In verse 25, hear what he says, there is one thing I now know. I was blind, but now I see. And then verse 30 is amazing. This illiterate, unimportant beggar 
has by this point experienced enough and thought through enough to be able to give the Pharisees, the leaders of this group, this religious group of people, a full theological lecture about who he thinks Jesus is. He kind of rants at them really beautifully. Never since the world began has it been heard of anyone being healed of blindness from birth. You say God spoke to Moses, that's great, but God listened to Jesus. God spoke to Moses, he listened to Jesus. If Jesus was not from God, he would not be able to do that. He is a wise, thoughtful, and considered man. He weighs up everything he knows, everything that has happened, all the questions and answers he is hearing, and he decides that he has to believe in Jesus. Belief in Jesus is not about blind faith. It's about sound judgment, and this man makes a sound judgment. To genuinely believe someone, to trust someone unfailingly, you need to be able to justify that trust. You need to consider what's at stake if you trust someone. And the man who was blind does this. He does know what's at stake. He knows he'll get cast out of the community. And he knows what Jesus has done. He's lived through it. He can see. The more he sits with all of this information, the more he realizes who Jesus is. And so when Jesus, when Jesus hears that the man has been cast out of the community, he goes and finds the man and speaks to him. But there's only one more question the man needs to ask to make his final judgment. Who is the son of man, sir? Tell me who he is so that I may believe in him. That's the last piece he needs. And once he works out that it's the man in front of him, everything falls into place and the man is ready to believe. See, our story teaches us belief in Jesus is about sound judgment. This might put a slightly different spin on Jesus' words that we read in verse 39. Can you see them down there? I'm on the wrong page. Jesus says in verse 39, I came into the world for judgment, so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Jesus came into this world for judgment. And that's because Jesus' very presence in the world, everything he says, everything he does, every question he asks, requires a response from each and every person who encounters him. We learn from the testimony of Jesus, or from the testimony of the scriptures, that Jesus is creatively powerful enough to restore sight to a lifelong blind man. We learn that Jesus is compassionate enough to personally seek out someone who has been cast away from his community. And as we read beyond this story, to the other testimonies of his life, we see even more that requires a response, that Jesus is stronger than death, that Jesus can forgive even the darkest and most evil sin, that Jesus can heal not just physical ailments, but spiritual and emotional ailments too. We see that Jesus can restore broken relationships within families, within neighborhoods, even between rival ethnic groups. And we also see that Jesus has come to expose evil, to make judgments, to stand against corruption, whether that's the corruption of a powerful institution or the corruption of an ordinary human heart. 
Have you heard any of this yet? Have you encountered Jesus yet? If you aren't ignoring Jesus, you will know that he requires a response. And when we respond to Jesus, we can go two ways. We can either respond like the Pharisees. They've learnt a lot, they know a lot, and they take pride in what they know. And they're prejudiced, unable to change their thinking if it messes with their preformed opinions about who Jesus is. Or we can be like the man who was born blind. He is ready to learn and ready to consider the evidence. This encounter with Jesus for him becomes an opportunity to weigh up everything that's been going on and to make a sound judgment about following Jesus. What's absolutely beautiful in John 9, and especially in that verse 39, is that Jesus gives us a little window into how he goes about making sound judgments about us. We learn in this passage that Jesus is the Son of Man. This is an Old Testament prophecy from Daniel 7, and according to that prophecy, being the Son of Man makes him, I quote, the one to whom God gives dominion and glory and kingship, that all people's nations and languages should serve him. Being the Son of Man gives him unlimited power. If Jesus is the Son of Man, it means he is the ultimate judge of the world, and what he says goes. Can you imagine what kind of power a human judge, or what kind of things a human judge could do with that kind of power? What kind of judgments a human judge could make if they had all dominion and glory and kingship around the whole world? Would they be sound judgments? In John 9, we get a little window into how Jesus makes judgments. He says he has come into this world for judgment so that those who do not see, like the blind man, might see. And those who do see, people like the Pharisees, may become blind. The thing is, it's the judgments that we make about Jesus that become the basis for how Jesus judges us. Jesus is not like a normal human judge. He is not corrupted by power. He can't have his hands tied by a system that doesn't work. He isn't inaccessible to people without means for representation. Jesus isn't like a normal human judge. He won't judge you based on the connections that you have. He won't judge you based on the mistakes that you make. He won't judge you based on how much money you give away or how much money you make or what legacy you leave or even what school you went to. All Jesus wants to do as the judge is to listen to you and your judgment of him because he cares about you and he listens to you. His judgment about you is entirely based on what you think of him. So when we encounter Jesus, whether it's for the very first time when someone shares a wild Bible story with us, or if it's for the 700th millionth time because we've been reading the scriptures or we hear a song lyric, or we remember a Bible verse while we're watching the sunrise under a waterfall, or maybe because we've hit rock bottom and we discover that Jesus is already there with us. Wherever or whenever we encounter Jesus, the question is, how do we respond? We push away anything that doesn't fit our preformed opinions, or we slow down to make a sound judgment, like the blind man, to weigh up what we have seen, to think about the things that we know, and to ask questions, and to listen carefully. When we encounter Jesus, 
do we believe? Do you believe? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Please pray with me. Father, we look to your Son. Thank you for sending to us a Son, a Saviour who seeks each one of us out personally and who cares about each one of us and what we think. Thank you for sending us a Son of Man who does not judge us arbitrarily but reaches out to us from a place of love and grace. Thank you for sending to us your Spirit who is prepared to make a home among us so that we might see you even more clearly. Help us, Lord, to see your Son, to consider him, to know him, and to respond to him with wisdom and sound judgment. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, the Son of Man. Amen.